fear. But on the kindness, bravery, and love side, he needs to be fed a very strict, careful, limited diet. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond but at diamonds direct we beg to differ have you ever met a mother strong radiant timeless this mother's day give her the gift that meets her match with diamond jewelry starting at 200 plus diamonds directs exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at diamonds direct diamonds direct your love our passion Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Scott Edelstein, who has studied with several spiritual teachers, including Tony Packer, Danan Katagiri, Tim McCarthy, and currently Steve Hagen. As the friend of several spiritual teachers, he's also spent much time with them off-duty, sometimes serving as a confidant. He's a longtime practitioner of both Buddhism and Judaism, and a committed proponent of serious spirituality in all forms and traditions. Scott's work on several spiritual topics has appeared in Shambhala Sun, American Jewish World, The Writer. His new book is The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure and a bit of an honor to be here. I'm excited to have you on. Your book is called The User's Guide to Spiritual Teachers, which I think is a topic many of our listeners are going to be interested in. So we will get into it in just a second. But let's start like we always do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second. And he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Sure. Well, first of all, the work that I do is as a writer and researcher and editor and collaborator and ghostwriter. And I would actually like to edit this parable because I would argue that there's a word here that is not right. That indeed, there is always a battle 
going on inside us with kindness, bravery, love, and other such things on one side, and with greed, hatred, and other such things on the other. But I would argue, and strongly, that fear belongs on both sides. And that fear, but on the kindness, bravery, and love side, needs to be fed a very strict, careful, limited diet. And the reason for that is, fear is partly what keeps us alive, it's partly what keeps us safe. There are things we need to be afraid of. What happens is people then stoke and feed the fear in an inappropriate way for things that we shouldn't be afraid of. We shouldn't be afraid of immigrants uh, just because they're immigrants. We shouldn't be afraid of, of people who we see as the other just because they're the other. We probably shouldn't be othering them in the first place. Uh, but we also should be paying attention to our bodies, um, to our hearts, to our minds. When we do feel fear, and instead of saying, oh, that fear is bad and getting rid of it, we need to actually discern whether that fear is telling us something useful and important. And I'm saying all this because that discernment is at the heart of the user's guide to spiritual teachers. One of the big problems that often happens with spiritual teachers who are charlatans or predators or narcissists or libertines or whatnot is we assume that because they're a spiritual teacher, we should never fear them. But actually, there's plenty of people in that role who we should fear. And if we paid attention to that fear, it would serve us well. Yes. An earlier book of yours was Sex and the Spiritual Teacher, Why It Happens, When It's a Problem, and, and What We Can All Do. And certainly, there are no shortage of stories of spiritual teachers who take advantage of students. So I agree with you. It's certainly something to watch out for and worry about. I want to kind of just jump into the book because I think there's so many different things in here that you talk about with spiritual teachers. And I want to start by a saying or something that you have pretty early in the book. You say a spiritual teacher is a living, breathing human being with normal human emotions, impulses, and desires. So talk to me about what you're driving at with that sentence, like why that's important. Sure. If they didn't have the normal human desires and expectations and foibles, um, then they would have nothing of value to teach us because they wouldn't be able to, number one, speak from their experience, including their mistakes. Number two, they wouldn't have the necessary empathy. So if I were to look at a cat and go, why, why are you tearing that mouse to pieces? Well, the cat would just say, you don't understand at all, do you? Um, because you and I would never tear a mouse to pieces. But if you're a cat, there is nothing uh, better, more appropriate, more fun than to beat the crap all out of a mouse. So if we're going to assume that our teachers are somehow, our spiritual teachers are somehow uh, inherently different from us, then how are we going to apply their experience to our lives? And indeed, the only people who are going to claim that they're fundamentally different from us are going to be charlatans, or alternatively, somehow some supposedly channeled being. But the, even if the being is somehow being channeled in sign of some corporeal timeshare, the same rules of engagement and the same discernment would apply. Yeah, I'm always interested in it. It's a question I've asked some of the so-called teachers we've had on the show, and it's really about people who make some claim or believe to some degree that they have achieved use the word enlightenment, awakening, mm -hmm. use whatever word you want. And I'm always kind of curious, the thing I'm trying to get out of, out of those folks sometimes is, well, how different 
is having obtained that, <laughs> how different is that experience of living than what, say, mine is or, or other people's? And I find it a fascinating question because at the heart of the show, we talk a lot about this, and you reference it in the book, this idea of, you know, we're seeking something, and yet at the same time, that seeking often can stand in the way. But there's a reason that, that we are on a spiritual journey. There is a place to go, although I, I get that we could say there's not, but for purposes of keeping this conversation sane, <laughs> we'll assume there is a place to go, that there is some degree of improvement in our quality of life that occurs. And I just am always interested in like, just how far does that go? It's a wonderful question, and I'm thrilled that you asked it, so thank you. Uh, let me speak to that in a couple of ways. Um, the first is people, I do think, um, uh, pretty consistently misunderstand enlightenment as some kind of threshold that gets crossed, some combination of losing your virginity and getting bar mitzvah uh, <laughs> are confirmed. First of all, that's not the case, because uh, as we know, everything's constantly changing. Everything's in flux and flow, and so even if a certain experience appears, that doesn't mean that that experience is, uh, stays around forever because nothing stays around forever. So, uh, I think it's more useful to look at enlightenment and we'll come back to what is enlightenment in a moment as, uh, something that comes and goes. For some people, it may never come at all. For others, if it does show up, it then disappears again. Uh, you can't, it isn't something where you can suddenly, oh, uh, some gate has opened in my brain and uh, now I can just rest on my laurels or now everything's easy or now I understand everything or now my discernment is perfect. We still have to be engaging moment by moment, listening to our own hearts and minds and guts, making our own determinations. So that would be the first half. The second is that the whole question of, of what is enlightenment and, of course, as Louis Armstrong said, if you, if you have to explain it, you're not, you're not getting it. He said that, of course, about jazz. So this notion that enlightenment is a thing that is somehow gotten, kind of like some bonus or some um, award, uh, I think is also pretty misleading. That said, as human beings, there are things we can know or recognize that we didn't previously recognize or know. And there are things that we can realize we know that we have known but didn't realize we knew. So, um, and so uh, I don't want to d- dis or dismiss enlightenment because it's, in quotes, real. <laughs> Yet at the same time, it's certainly not anything that, that people would uh, typically imagine it to be. Right. Well, that's the whole thing about it is the idea of you, you can't put into words something that you can't put into words. Um, the, the other thing that, and I don't remember where I heard this and who I had this conversation with, but the idea has sort of stuck around with me. You know, a lot of times we, th- we think of enlightenment in the sense of the, the Satori type experience, just the sudden like whack upside the head and boom, you know, an explosion goes off in our brain and we are in a different place. And somebody posited that, yes, that's the way it happens for some people. And it seems very dramatic. They take a dramatic growth step forward. But that for a lot of people, the reason that a lot of other people might be equally, again, I'm going to use this word in quotes, enlightened, right, or have a same degree of realization, it's just that it happened so slowly, they barely noticed it. And I think that's a fascinating idea, because I often think about if you could take me 
at, say, 24 years old when I was just coming off of being a heroin addict and you could drop me in my brain today, I bet that 24-year-old would have his mind blown by what it's like to be in my head today. And I'm not saying that being in my head is like so amazingly special. I'm just saying the difference from the mindset and the way that I operated then till now is so dramatic. It's just that I don't mostly notice it because it's been a 20-year process or 20-plus year process. You said a couple of, I think, important things. One is simply about the uh, the nature of maturation, that as we grow, we grow, if we're paying attention, as we grow older, we grow wiser. And if we're paying attention consistently and in the right ways, that even that wisdom, the quality of the wisdom we have changes. In terms of the quick versus uh, the sudden versus the gradual, uh, I think the best analogy I would draw there is you can win the lottery or get an inheritance and be a millionaire. And you can also put aside $50 a week from your paycheck for uh, 50 years and be a millionaire. And both of those uh, wind up you know, at the same spot, at least financially. You have a million yeah. dollars. Yeah, <laughs> either way. That said, I would like to add one thing is that the two most, in quotes, profound, supposedly spiritual experiences that I've had really, I would argue, are not remotely profound. I had one under the influence of LSD at age, oh God, I don't know, 19? Five. No, I'm just kidding. Five, (laughs) Who were your parents? Uh, No wonder you wrote a book about spiritual teachers. (laughs) (laughs) Then I had another one doing sun salutations at about age, I don't know, again, maybe a year later. They seem profound because one was a whack in the head, the other was a whack in the head and the body. But now at age 63... Looking back, I'd say, well, yeah, they were, re- they both revealed something. And the, the second one was a huge body experience, probably the most in quotes profound experience my body's been through. But in terms of insight, they actually revealed something that now just seems like normal, relevant background information. I just wasn't used to it at that young age. Yep. Makes sense to me. I've had some things that are similar. In that regard, it's just a, it's sort of a fascinating idea to me because there do seem to be states that occur that are profoundly different than my ordinary consciousness, um, and and they are striking perhaps to the degree in which they do differ. Um, but the insights underneath them, to your point, sort of over a period of time, start to seem relatively commonplace or normal if you live with the belief long enough. And that, uh, I would argue, is one of a spiritual teacher's uh, main values, is you can go to your spiritual teacher with this information, and they can say things like, as they often do, oh yeah, that's pretty normal. Or, or yeah, that's, don't, don't let that bother you. It's, it's fine. Or, yeah, so what? Or, oh yeah, you had some insight. Well, is that it? Yeah. Anything else? <laughs> uh, no. And then, and then they send you back uh, out into your life. Right. So one of the things that you talk about in the book often is a spiritual teacher that I kind of consider, at least right now, one of the main people who I learn a lot from is Adi Ashanti. And he says something similar to, he says, don't do this. And, and you talk about how it's a common thing that people do, which is to really hand over a large degree of our 
personal autonomy would be the word that he would use to a, a, a spiritual teacher. You say many of us students try to avoid the unavoidable pain of making our own decisions, living into their consequences, and growing up. So we ask our teachers to make our personal decisions for us. Should I take this job or that job? Should I leave my husband or stay with him and try and work things out? Is it okay for me to eat meat, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, well, first of all, I want to give a uh, thumbs up and a shout out to uh, Yashanti. Uh, he's, he's got a lot of wisdom. And I'm thrilled that you had him um, on your show, actually twice. So that's that's great. The uh, and I would certainly agree with him that uh, one mark of a spiritual teacher worth their salt is they will not try to take from you or allow you to hand over um, any responsibilities or decisions that are yours. Probably the clearest signs of a charlatan uh, or someone who shouldn't be a spiritual teacher is someone who either wants something from you or is trying to run your life for you or is trying to make decisions for you or tells you basically you need to get in line here and do what everybody else is doing. That's almost inevitably a sign that this person is potentially dangerous. Uh, because after all, ultimately our job uh, as human beings, of course, is to be decent human beings, but also to grow up, to wise up, to open up, to be more fully human. And there's no way to do that by handing over our responsibilities and our decisions to some other person. Yeah, this is an interesting concept for me because as I was reviewing, I read your book previously, um, we were going to do the interview and we had to reschedule it. And so I was going back through it all today in the notes and something occurred to me that hadn't occurred to me before in thinking about this. And I started to think about the concept of sponsors in AA and it brought me back to thinking about how that role can look like a lot of different things in AA depending on who's doing it. And AA, like anywhere, is likely to create hero figures um, or spiritual teachers or extremely wise people. And how in sponsorship, it's always this, and I sponsored a lot of people and was sponsored by people. There was this line that was difficult because on one hand, you've got a person in those cases like me, take me at 24 and I've been homeless and a heroin addict. I don't know very much about living and I have a track record of disastrous decisions. So having somebody who doesn't necessarily take all that and make all my decisions for me, but somebody who's willing to maybe take a slightly heavier role there than you might want I wouldn't want that now in my life, but at that time, there was some use in it. But I did ultimately hit a point very quickly where I went like, I don't need somebody to make all my decisions. I don't want somebody to make all my decisions. But boy, I noticed in AA, there were a lot of people that stayed there for a long time that really did want that. You know, everything was like, well, I'm going to ask my sponsor what they think. I'm going to ask my sponsor what they think. And I think getting feedback is always a great idea. After a while, it just sort of creeped me out a little bit. This like, I'm going to run every decision I make or everything I think by another person to see what they think. And so I think that's endemic to this, this this question of working with a spiritual teacher or a sponsor because we are dealing with matters that guidance is important and useful, right? And it's just like, how far does that guidance go and, and what are the limits on it? I don't think it's as black and white as we might like it to be, but I do agree with you that most often it's easy, at least from the outside, to see the abuse of that. Fantastic question. I'd like to speak to several parts of it. And so full disclosure, 
I have written um, a lot of recovery material. This is 12. We're talking about 12 step material. Uh, I've been in a, a 12 step recovery group and I've ghostwritten for a lot of 12 step authors. So uh, I want to speak to both the 12 steps and other things related to it. So for example, the 24 year old who is uh, caught in what 12 step people will call stinking thinking and doesn't really know how to make some, some basic decisions. There, it might be necessary for the people who love him or her to do an intervention. And that would be something completely outside of what the sponsor would be at the center of. So the sponsorship role might be a piece of what's necessary at that particular place and time. That said, it yes, there's always, whenever someone has a leadership role or a mentoring role or a sponsorship role or a spiritual teaching role, um, they need to exercise their discernment very consistently to be able to make sure that they are never putting their desires or needs or concerns ahead of the student. They're always got to do it in service of the student. And meanwhile, the student or the mentee or, or whomever, or the sponsee, also has to be uh, exercising their own discernment. And in fact, the word discernment, which I use a lot in both of my books on spiritual teacher, I will give a big shout out here to the 12-step programs, because they use that word discernment over and over and over. And that is essentially building the ability through getting to know yourself, through paying attention, through um, hard and sometimes not so hard experience, being able to know whom to trust, what to trust. Uh, we're back to this whole notion of fear again, right? When do you trust fear and when do you not? When are you, When is it appropriate to feed it and how much and when is it not? So, so discernment is at the heart of all this. And in both my books, just as in 12-step programs, I encourage people to build that discernment and that fits very well with uh, any spiritual tradition that has what's sometimes called a mystical component, where you're uh, essentially challenged to be fully present and fully engaged, as opposed to check out into some trance state or to check out into mere obedience. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. And here's the rest of the interview with Scott Edelstein. 
you write in the book at one point, all of us who have spiritual teachers are sometimes tempted to treat them as our surrogate parents. This is especially true when we face great stress, pain, or uncertainty. And I do think it's that, that latter piece, that when we face great stress, fear, or uncertainty, that we are in need of more guidance. I think discernment is the, is the key there, and part of, I think, what's in that word is that discernment means you have to have knowledge of the situation of the people involved and all that. So we can't make some blanket statements because discernment really is being able to take the things into consideration in those moments. Well, I'd like to add a confession here, if I may, Eric, and that is uh, because you bring up the classic situation where we go, I can't trust myself right now. And so I need to consult with someone else. And I'm in that situation now. So, uh, now you had fairly recently had Steve Hagen on, uh, Steve Hagen wrote, uh, Buddhism Plain and Simple, Meditation Now or Never, and a couple of other books. He's a longtime friend. I go to his meditation center, uh, Dharma Field. Uh, I would consider him my teacher as well as my friend. However, I also belong to a, a synagogue where we were, you know, I know the rabbi well. So over the last year, things that are happening in our world, um, in this country, in the world in general, but in this country in particular, um, have been completely uh, involving the, the President of the United States, Congress, and so on, completely outside the realm of anything I thought was even possible. I mean, right now, and I should add that uh, today's date is July 24th of 2018, and right now the whole country is grappling with the fact that it appears that the essentially the entire political right has been played by Russian operatives. Now, that's something that would, if, if I wrote it in a thriller, editors would go, that's ridiculous, we'll never publish this novel. Yet that's what's happening. So this means I have to be watching my own mind, my own situation, because part of my brain is having to deal with an everyday reality that's well beyond my imagination. And what have I decided to do? I'm actually, I'm not going to Steve Hagen. Why? Because for all I know, um, he's a wonderful human being. I love him. He's a great guy. Um, but he's no fan of, of, of what's going on. And I'm actually worried. Well, maybe, I'd, maybe he wouldn't be this way, but I'm worried, um, that we'll wind up commiserating about what a mess the country's in. So I've decided I'm going to the rabbi and saying, I'm, I'm coming here and I'm talking to you periodically for half an hour. And your, your job is to help me keep my feet on the ground and my head on straight. And for that, I decided that he was the better person. It might just be a friend right to make that decision. But that's a classic example of how to reach out in the right way, at least I hope the right way, at the right time to whoever the right person is. That is a great example also of, you know, going to the right person for the right thing. And Adi Ashanti uses an example of it would be useful to think of your spiritual teacher in some cases like you would a university professor. If you are in a math class with a university professor, they know math and you go there for math, right? <laughs> but you're probably not going to ask that person what car you should buy or, you know, what girl you should date, right? You go to the right person for the right thing. And and I think it's it's safe to say that not every question we have is answered by a spiritual teacher, that there are other experts in the world that we can go to for for different things and kind of a point you make throughout the whole book is that if we think that one person has the answer to everything we're probably putting that person on a pedestal that is not healthy for them or us 
I will add that you brought up a really useful caveat, which is that if your thinking is way off, if, for example, um, you're uh, seriously down the road of a life-threatening addiction, and so you're just not thinking straight, then it may be useful to ask a spiritual teacher or almost anyone, well, you know what, um, what kind of car should I buy? Should I buy this Maserati? I just got a raise from $11 an hour to twelve fifty an hour, <laughs> and the Maseratis are on sale. You don't, you know, a spiritual teacher will probably be able to give as good an answer as anyone else as hell no. And you might need it if you're, if for some reason they, they believe and they can see that your thinking is way, way out of the norm. Yep, I agree. And I, and I do think that that's what makes some of this so confusing is it's very difficult to peel apart spiritual from emotional from mental from I mean, these things are all tied together. And so it's not as simple as like, oh, well, okay, if it's case A, you ask this person and for this, you ask that person. I'm, I'm certainly not insinuating that it's that simple. May I speak to your use of the word spiritual there? Because I think you raised a, um, a really profound issue. This word spiritual has done us a great service and a great disservice. So first, the service is it's reunited the secular and the religious, which we split decades ago and which we were foolish to split. Um, we should have just become more discerning about uh, the two. So now, supposedly, things can be divided into the religious and the secular, which is absurd. Thou shalt not murder is not a, re a merely religious concept, but it surely is. It's in the Ten Commandments, but it's also enshrined in secular law. It belongs in both, and so much of uh, the of human codes of conduct belong in both. So those, those got split out, I think, to our detriment, and spirituality, the term, manages to bring them back in. However, it does so, unfortunately, and this is a, now I'm going to diss it a little bit, um, it does it by watering it down because the term spirituality is very vague and it's been co-opted by lots of people. Some people think that means talking to angels. Other thing it means getting shivers going up your spine. Other people think it means helping out at the local food shelf. And uh, what, of course, it means, I would argue, if you're going to put any meaning on it, is the good wolf. Kindness, bravery, love, all those things. Well, by the way, a quick coda on fear. I neglected to say that bravery requires fear. And so there's another example of how fear belongs to both wolves. You cannot be brave if you're unafraid. When a child runs out into the street in front of a moving car because they don't know better, that is hardly bravery. But when you run out in front of that car to push the child out of the way to save their life, that's bravery. And as you do so, you may be scared to death, but you know it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Yes, courage does require some degree of fear. Otherwise, it's not really courage. Near the end of the book, you say, and this just made me laugh because it's just, it's so dry and, and just a, s a single sentence and it's so obvious, but also there's just a, something about it. You said, sometimes spiritual study and practice can be surprisingly boring. <laughs> it's true. Indeed it is. And what you're suggesting there is that this is a fairly subtle thing, but a lot of people get into, quote, spirituality or study with a spiritual teacher because what they really want is some kind of thrill. 
And that can be everything from a kind of pseudo-sexual body sensation, you know, some kind of spiritual orgasm. Ooh, I want to feel the Kundalini rise. Ooh, I want to feel this. I want to feel that. Or desire for some kind of big head-exploding insight. And so what they really want is to acquire some kind of spiritual goodie. Or they might want some spiritual toys to play with. Ooh, I want the power to levitate or the power to do this or the power to do that. And let me just say really clearly, that's all bogus bullshit. None of it is. I can tell you what spirituality is not, and it's none of those things. And so one of the things that happens is people go, they get very excited at first, and either think they have an idea of spiritual growth, and they either feel like, oh, I'm getting smarter, I'm getting better, I'm getting this, I'm getting that. And if there's anything that might typify growing up in the, quote, spiritual, unquote, realm, it's beginning to loosen your grip on the damn getting. In the realm of uh, human connection and of human maturation and growing up, it's not about getting. It's about giving and it's about doing things together. lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with the 7 every weekday. So follow the 7 right now. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. That's another area that, that just makes me think back to alcoholism and addiction because, you know, even in AA itself, it often talks about how that alcohol is a substitute for a spiritual experience or a, a spiritual life. And I think it is very easy to think of spirituality as being something that can provide some experience of being alive like alcohol and drugs do. But it does it in a very different way. The similarity there is it's about being connected to things. I think that is what, at least at the heart of addiction for me was, was about being connected. And at the heart of spirituality, that is also the thing that I think remains most essential and elemental to me is to be connected to life and its various components. But I also agree with you more and more, I'm realizing that the path of, of spirituality is one of subtraction rather than addition. That's a really lovely way to put it, subtraction rather than addiction. If you don't mind, I would like to encourage 
uh, your listeners to sit with that for a while because Eric just said something deeply important. And it might be the only time that happens for like the next six or eight episodes, folks. So you might as well give it a shot. <laughs> There's actually two pieces to this that I, I'd like to call out. The first is, yes, belonging. Uh, whether the word is connecting or belonging, it is uh, one of our deepest, if not our very deepest, human need. And that's why uh, uh, one of the reasons the 12-step programs are so effective is that you're uh, – they don't work for everybody, but – um, they are a place to belong. Now, that's also one reason why the National Rifle Association, the Ku Klux Klan, continue, because they're places to belong. So belonging also requires some discernment. You know, you can belong to good wolf organizations and you can belong to, to bad wolf organizations. Um, but that is one of the, the defining um, characteristics, often, um, of what people call the spiritual quest and of 12 steps and recovery. But there's another one that I'd like to also highlight, and that's the giving up of all control, understanding that we are not in control. That is also a hallmark of 12 steps, and it's a hallmark of what goes by the name um, of spiritual opening or spiritual development or whatnot. And in fact, my own favorite book on, on recovery and 12 steps is called Recovery, the Sacred Art. It's by Rami Shapiro. Rami is an ecumenical rabbi. He's the only rabbi I know of who's uh, had a, a piece he's written in best Buddhist writing of the year. So, and he, he travels around the world. He's, he is a spiritual teacher. It's been a long time, but he was a guest on this show probably 150 episodes ago, which wow, it's amazing to me how wow. long we've been doing this. But yes, he wow. was. he's out there, folks, if you want to find him, <laughs> you can find him. Rami is a recovering food addict. I have eaten with him and I've watched... Uh, he's the only person I've ever uh, uh, watched to which the phrase food-seeking behavior erupted in, in my mind. I mean, you could, you could see he's a recovering food addict. It's a wonderful book, and it is not written for people who have some identifiable um, addiction, uh, what, or what we would normally call an addiction. Uh, what he says is we are all addicted to control. And that that is a fundamental human issue and that what we ultimately we all wind up, whether we have uh, a substance abuse issue, a supposed behavioral um, addiction or none of the above, we all wind up on our knees at some point going, I have no control. I need God or the universe or a higher power's help, however you want to define that. And I would argue that that is a defining characteristic of uh, spirituality in all traditions and outside of all traditions and in recovery and in growing up. I agree. I always caveat that with the the idea of the serenity prayer, which is the recognition of, of trying to recognize what we can. I don't think the word is control. The word in the prayer is actually what we can change, what we can influence. And so for me, it's been interesting because on one hand, for most of my time in recovery and all that, the lesson I needed most was not the one to accept, but it was the one to have the courage to change because I had and still have a tendency sometimes to just be like, F it, right? Or just to let things go. So for a lot of time, for me, it was about having the courage to to step in and do the change. But lately for me, what 
mostly I've been working with is just the limits of that, of really realizing the difference between the ability to change, the ability to influence, the ability to have effect, but where that that does really stop short of the ability to control and really realizing the limits of action and change and improvement and, and where that stuff just ends. I've been, I've been dealing with that a lot lately. And then this notion of the ability to change really breaks out into two uh, seeming mirror images, but they're both part of the same whole. The first is the ability to uh, set a goal, follow it, which we Americans are very familiar with because that's, that's baked into our culture. You got, you want to change? Fine. Determine the change, work toward it, um, envision it, yada, yada. But there, especially in spirituality, there's a more uh, subtle, but I would argue typically more important and also typically more difficult aspect to it, which is not so much the ability to change yourself, where you grab yourself and haul yourself somewhere else, but the willingness to be changed, where you open yourself up to the complete unknown, knowing that you don't know what's going to happen, don't know what the solution is, don't know what the future will be, just know that where you are right now is untenable and that you ask for help in changing, whether that help is with what the 12-step programs call a higher power, whether it's other human beings, and whether you don't even know. But that willingness to be changed is, I would argue, uh, all important. I think it's really profound and, and beautiful. I focus a lot and I think a lot, you know, the show is about the ability of us to change and, and to have a positive influence in the world and on ourselves. But I think what you said there is so important is that the willingness to be changed by things other than our own will is really a critical thing. So I'd like to bring this back to spiritual teachers because this applies in a variety of ways. First of all, Someone who goes to a spiritual teacher and says, I need to change, change me. The correct answer from a spiritual teacher is, you're right, you need to change. I am not changing you. That is not my job. But what I can do is watch if you fall off a tree limb or if you're going too far out on a tree limb, I can tell you that. If you fall off and hurt yourself, I can help you back up, back up again, you know, help you get up. There's a lot of things that the spiritual teacher can do, but they absolutely cannot change you and will not change you. Um, and if they think, if they go, yeah, I'll change you, then run the hell away because you're dealing with a charlatan or a predator or a narcissist or, or somebody who's not the real thing. Now, the other thing that will often happen is the spiritual teacher, um, the, the spiritual teacher will just say, if they're not good, oh, follow this, follow this program, one size fits all. And then you will change in the right way. I would be also very, very careful of all these one-size-fits-all situations. On top of that, we can go, people go to uh, spiritual teachers and say they want to change. But there's a, a, a paradox built into that, which is, well, why aren't you changing already? If I want a cup of coffee, I will go get a cup of coffee. I'm not going to, to, to start telling people I want a cup of coffee someday. That's my goal. They will, know, they will start saying, well, go get your damn coffee. So part of what a good spiritual teacher can do is point out where the person is resisting the change that they need. And they might say something about it or, um, or they might help the student wake up to what they're actually doing, what they're saying versus what they're actually doing. 
Certainly they might teach a particular practice like meditation that can be useful, but then that's, it, it's not that they're doing it to make that change. It's just something helpful and supportive. And then the last thing that, that people can get caught up in is, um, people will go to a spiritual teacher and, and say, am I changing? Am I better now? Am I, am, am I this? Am I that? And, um, often the spiritual teacher's job at that point is to say, stop worrying about it. You know, you're, you're hoping, you're coming to me and hoping for a grade of A in spirituality. And a good teacher is not going to be handing out that kind of candy. They'll, they'll say, just keep paying attention. Just keep watching. Just keep living. Just keep doing your best. And I will try to keep you. I will help you when you seem to be either going too far astray or when you're lost, I might be able to give you a little bit of guidance. That's wonderful. We're nearing the very end of our time here. What I did want to ask you to do real quick, though, and I don't remember where it is. I'll find it and put it in the show notes. But you've got an article somewhere, and maybe you can remember where it is. Um, and we're not going to go through it all right now. But it's about things to bear in mind or questions to ask or how to go to a new spiritual center if you're like the new person going to a spiritual center. Do you remember where you wrote that and where that is? Yes. Well, actually, uh, um, <laughs> I wrote that in 1979 or 1980. And I sent that around from, from magazine to magazine and magazine. No one would touch it. And then it took, uh, over, it took, I believe, almost, th- how many years would this have been? It took 36 years or something like that before someone would print it. It's now, um, up online. Uh, it's called When You're the New Kid at the Spiritual Center. I think it's on, in two or three publications. One of them, I believe, is The Edge, which I think would be TheEdge.com, but, it also appears as the appendix in the user's guide to spiritual teachers. And so it's a guide for someone uh, who's showing up uh, at a spiritual organization that they're not familiar with for the first time. You know, it's not like you're going to a new Lutheran church. It might be a, a tradition you're utterly unfamiliar with, or it might even be your own tradition. You, know, you might be a Catholic, but this is the first time you've walked into a, a Cistercian monastery, for example, and you don't, you don't know what to expect. So it's a brief, um, very practical, very simple guide about what to do and what not to do. Yeah, I thought it was really useful as somebody who's wandered into more strange situations than I can count by just showing up (laughs) at spiritual centers. I'm pretty comfortable just walking in and seeing what happens. But a lot of people get nervous. And I just thought it was a very useful guide to kind of just to help make that experience go a little easier. Well, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. I really enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, It's been great. Thank you so much, Eric. Okay. Take care. Take care. All right. Be well. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneufeed.net slash support. The One You Feed podcast would like to sincerely thank our sponsors for supporting the show. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. 